The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Nau mai hoki mai ki Adafold e mihi nei ko Duncan Greer talking on My guest this week is Hayden Donnell, uh, who, I mean, anyone who's been a reader of the spin-off over any period of time will be familiar with his byline. Hayden was a staff writer here and continues to write for us, who's a, been a very big part of of our sort of identity as an organisation. He also uh, now and for the past couple of years has worked uh, part-time as a senior producer for Media Watch, which is RNZ's very long-running, very, very good uh, show which sort of analyzes and critiques the the New Zealand media, particularly the news media. And uh, and I, I play basketball with Hayden. He's a, a hilarious uh, character and, you know, very... Very interested in this business. It's not a surprise to me that he is, has ended up um, co-hosting Media Watch and has got, always got a kind of a very original take. In fact, just last night I, I went to AUT's 50th uh, anniversary of its journalism program and, and Donna Chisholm, you know, the real doyen of New Zealand journalism, quoted Hayden Donnell like three times. It was a bit much. I was glad Hayden wasn't there to see it because it would have really, you know swollen him up with pride I think in a way that might have been unseemly but but uh, it was also very appropriate that she did that because he is you know one of the the best sort of analyzers and and critiquers of of this industry as well as being a big fan of it um, much as I am so I thought I'd get him on and just go through the year in media we're recording this on Thursday the 8th of December 2022 so any development subsequent to that will not be in it. I'm not sure when it's going to go to where this one's going to go up but um you know forgive us if we missed anything but we're just trying to kind of wrap the year in media and discuss it from our relative perches. I think it's a good time. This is Hayden Donnell from RNZ's Media Watch on the Fold. Kia ora, Hayden. Kia ora, Duncan. Welcome to The Fold slash, well, I don't know if we can call it a crossover episode because we don't necessarily have approval from uh, the, the infrastructure at RNZ. Let's but assume that this is all RNZ approved <laughs> and that we can say that I work for RNZ's Media Watch, but that sometimes if I'm saying stuff that RNZ wouldn't like, then I'm speaking in my capacity as a freelancer for the spin-off and other publications. I think that works. Actually, if I'm saying stuff that RNZ doesn't like, we should say that I'm speaking on behalf <laughs> of Metro Magazine, where I freelance quite a lot. Okay, so that's a, a real <laughs> convoluted intro. Well, the, my original conception for this was as a, as a crossover episode. Uh, Hayden is a good friend, uh, former spin-off staffer and still a frequent contributor. And the what, what is your official role at Media Watch? I'm a senior producer for Media Watch now. I do that 20 hours a week, and then I uh, try to get work off the media that I criticise for the other sort of maybe 10 to 15 hours a week. How's that working out? Uh, it, it has its challenges. I think there's some media organisations that I haven't picked up any work from. The spin-off still, still pays me every so often, though, so that's good. Well, we pay you so that you don't watch us so hard, you yeah. know? Yeah. Oh, this is going to get <laughs> <a good> cut. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, I'm really glad to have you here because I, I think you do a hell of a job with, with Media Watch and also like chatting shop with you. So the idea about of the, for this episode is that we basically go through the 10 biggest media stories of the year. I couldn't figure out an algo to make them, to rank them in terms of importance. So we're just going to go through them chronologically and uh, hopefully it will be some fun. The first story that made the top 10, I think, is the, the protests at Parliament, uh, which were just a, an extraordinary news event unto themselves. But there was also, they sort of felt like they revealed this parallel media information system and, and you know, and it just kind of just exploded in front of us. But you could also feel the social media heat and it was, it was, a, it was a wild time. Yes, and it caused this kind of media reckoning with itself where it went, oh my God, there's so many of these people. <laughs> uh, where have they come from? Have we been covering them enough? Have we been covering them appropriately? And I think there were people like Bryce Edwards going down there and saying it's a carnival atmosphere and, and saying you need to talk to these people. I, I almost think, though, that that instinct was kind of wrong. Like while these people in quite numerous and uh, very loud, uh, I think that subsequent events have probably shown that they aren't actually a significant political force just yet. Uh, I think maybe the local elections might have been a test of that, it's, where you had Voices for Freedom candidates and they didn't fare well. That's true. It, but, I mean, that that's, you know, on some level that's like feels connected to this idea that you know, we, we put MMP in, in place to, to serve as this kind of valve so that a, a geographically dispersed but non-trivial number of people could still make it into Parliament and feel represented, even if they weren't in a specific area. I mean, it's interesting, right, and I don't mean to pick on this, but like you, you did say these people three times in, the, in your response there. And I feel like, and this is a real complicated one for us as media writers, there, there was a sense that we covered people who were unvaccinated for whatever reason as kind of these people do you know what i mean like and and i don't know like what what was the function of our doing that was it to sort of try and bring them into the tent or was it to kind of other them I, that was a thing i sort of sometimes struggled with what do you what do you think about how the media covered the sort of unvaccinated community especially now that we've kind of largely done away with those the sort of the legal infrastructure that separated people. This was actually, I mean, this, maybe I am a bit othering and I do refer to them as these people. It's a disparate group down at Parliament. Some of them have genuine concerns, are quite pacifist and others are obviously not. They're Calvin Alp. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually thought the media was very sympathetic towards the unvaccinated at times over the pandemic, particularly with the mandates, and they really gave sympathetic coverage to people like nurses that were out of a job. And there, that was almost blanket, and I was critical of that because it felt like um, there was no similar coverage of the people that might be harmed by those people's actions. There was no similar amount of sympathy for the other side of the coin there. And so maybe I do become a bit othering because I feel like the people that are affected by those people's actions uh, are not necessarily given the same... They, we, they don't get the same hand-wringing and the same angst. The, the immunocompromised people, people with cancer in a hospital that is around an anti-masker or an anti-vaxxer. I, I kind of feel that oh, look, side I, of things quite intensely, and so I, I, I have more sympathy with those people that are harmed. More, more sympathy with those people than these people. Those people than these people. I'm on the those side. <laughs> so, I mean, look, the thing is, I, I think it's just undeniable that it was this really, really complex situation to cover. You had, you know, it was right on Parliament's lawn. You had the press gallery who are used to covering a very specific group of people in a very specific way, basically almost having to turn around and look at this thing. They were themselves subject to, I mean, anyone who went into that environment as a journalist, you know, was in quite a hostile, they were at times, they, there was a sense that they were on enemy territory that was almost like a little sovereign nation unto itself. And the thing that really buzzed me out, and I had Sanjana on to, to talk about this on the fold, was the sense that the while there was a particular scale to the protests at Parliament, the way that it took over social media at the time, you know, like I, I follow, you know, use this tool Crowd Tangle, which measures basically 
the social media engagement um, on Facebook particularly and the number of impressions that, that were happening on mainstream social media pages exploded during that time. It was probably running at more than triple what it is today. Now, Facebook's withdrawn from news um, quite intensely this year, but still... That, that there was it was amazing to watch the heat of it. And it was overwhelmingly driven by people who were anti-vax and furious and felt like there was a revolution brewing. And you know, did, there, there there was a little moment where it felt like it might kind of overwhelm. Like it, the, the digital overwhelm was almost more profound than the admittedly visceral kind of visuals of of what was happening at Parliament. Yeah, there's been some debate about how much echo chambers actually exist or serve to um, radicalise people, but I felt like that was really an example of an echo chamber where you had a whole group of people that weren't really reached by mainstream media and uh, I guess the media hadn't really confronted the fact that these people were so isolated from their reach and actually were actively hostile to them. And that was something that they had to grapple with in a very visceral way. And it's not gone away. Uh, but, but I think that, that maybe we, we can overstate the number of people that are in these communities because it is so easy to be loud when you are an obsessive online. You know this from being on Twitter. You can get really distorted views about <laughs> how people are and what they think just because there's a small group of very loud people in one space. And uh, I think that we are a little bit in danger of being sort of won over by a similar phenomenon here where you have the loudest and most radical people in New Zealand all in one space and all online and all yelling on your website at once and you think that they're bigger than they are. Yeah, I, I think that that's very fair. And there's just in general like a – at the time it felt like, you know, that that the you – know, that that group was – you know, was growing so fast that you didn't really know where this would end. And that now as you sit back at the end of the year and look at it, life sort of goes on somewhat. The thing that's interesting, and I, and I, I really don't have a set opinion on, you know, whether, whether it functions as a valve for some of those kind of views or which is, you know, a valve that kind of gives them a, a contained space to operate in or how it will ultimately play out. But this is the second story that I put down is is Sean Plunkett, who made good on his <laughs> threats, I don't know how to say it, and, and launched the platform in sort of, you know, uh, March, April of this year. What did what did you make of that, this kind of developing of a new online sort of talkback opinion model? It's kind of a uniquely of this moment endeavour, right, where you have this huge, uh, probably slightly not not completely uh, the same communities. Like there's a conspiracy community and this kind of free speech community and they're not necessarily crossover, but, but they're definitely movements that arise out of online and make ventures like the platform um, viable. I, I do want to say, I'm not trying to say that the, this, like the, the, the people down at Parliament, they're not... Uh, there's no potential to grow in, in to a huge audience or that there's, you I mean, look at the US, you know, this could be a really big thing. There's a lot of power there. Um, but maybe we did get an outsized idea of exactly how big they were at the time. But I mean, the platform is evidence that you can actually launch a pretty successful venture based on people that feel excluded from mainstream media and there's enough of them to s sustain you. Yeah, I think that that's the thing that's most interesting about about the platform because it is it's like a coalition of people who feel unified by very little apart from being excluded from the mainstream media discourse and it's interesting because the media has undergone this kind of big introspective reckoning over the past like you know 5 10 years where it realized that it was actually excluding a whole bunch of voices um particularly Māori and and Pacific and and uh, so on and and now it has sort of started to kind of process that and in so doing it's had this kind of thread of the people who are just kind of quite loud, you know, not not necessarily like I mean define racism, but they but they they really liked having a strong opinion about uh, Maori people, Pacific peoples, and 
you know, and they wanted the right to continue to do that. And it's like that, that feels like part of what uh, the the animates the platform, and that's you know certainly what its uh, funder, um, who I who I interviewed earlier this year, kind of made very clear about his motivations for funding it. Yeah, I turned it on today in preparation for this podcast. It was Michael Laws, and I don't know what the context was, but he was just saying it won't. He was reading out some feedback, and it was like it won't be the vaccine mandate that gets them uh, going. It's it, it'll be the ethnic thing that gets them going. That's a direct quote. Wow, I, and then and then Michael Law says, "Oh yes, and we'll talk about that." Nanaya Mahuta. So it is that, isn't it? It's that old style of talk. That, that was radio. just what talkback radio was, was forever, and it's changed somewhat. It's still, it's still mad, but there are just certain things that you can't talk about in that way again. Otherwise, you don't have any advertising revenue, and they're just so incensed that that you know you're not allowed to be that anymore. They've set up a whole kind of ecology to to where that happens and there's obviously there's a market for it in the sense that people like a certain subset of people still want that that's their audience it's whether there is a business there but Wayne Wright Jr you know the from the rights who funded it doesn't seem to be overly concerned about the the business side of it, at least not in the the sort of medium term yeah it, it's obviously sustainable for him and it, he's not paying for a radio frequency right it's online so that's kind of all right and that's where those people live those people I did those, it again oh my god so oh, I keep it those no. people counter <laughs> I mean the other thing that didn't quite make the list and 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 it sort of happened in parallel and it will be really interesting to look in a few years time at how the different fates of the platform and today FM di- diverge because they have the same origin story in a way magic talk was the was Sean Plunkett's old radio station and and a place where the likes of Michael Laws and, and so on had previously you know been part of uh, antecedents of it. And then you had Today FM, which took over those frequencies and really tried to be a much more moderate version of it. And, you know, I think it's a great product. I should disclose that we have a commercial relationship with them. Uh, you know, uh, spin-off people regularly appear on Today FM. But, you know, very genuinely, we don't know how this plays out in terms of which brand, which approach will prove the most successful, the, the quite extreme marginalised version or, or a much more kind of normie play? The platform, I feel like I'm saying two diametrically opposed things in, in a way because I'm saying that it's it's very now and that it's a reaction this, you know, to the woke mainstream media uh, going back to, you know, and that's a very now thing. You've got it from, you know, Elon Musk on Twitter right now. That's sort of the animating force behind what he does. But at the same time, as you're, you're right, it's old as the hills. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a reaction to the progress of society or people progressing in a way that you don't like. So yeah, it's just old school conservatism that talkback radio has thrived on forever, and maybe that's why it has been so so successful in a way. Today FM's trying to do something different uh, with its more balanced mic. Uh, style and uh, maybe it's uh, I mean Tova's great she's yeah. great <laughs> she's, she's really like great at that job yeah but maybe that audience is like it's hard to pick up that audience with like uh, 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 a mid- moderate approach they I mean, want an extreme it, it, approach exactly well is it an era for moderates like, I, 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 I'm not, not sure what did Jesus say you can be hot or you can be cold but if you're lukewarm I'll spit you out of my mouth. Is that what Jesus said? It might have been Jesus. might have been one of the other Bible people. I think it was Jesus. You would know. You know I know the, the Bible, Bible back to front. <laughs> but, but I think it's – But I don't know. I think it, it's a little bit of that. Like why are you tuning in? Is it because you're angry? Is it because because you want society well, to progress faster? The, the, it, yeah, exactly. Well, the thing is, there's a meme about it, like a like a centrist rally, right? It's like, yeah. what do we want? Like incremental progress. <laughs> when do we want it? Like in a politically expedient t- t- amount of time, or like I don't know. Yeah, I you know totally. And and like honestly, it does feel that way, and it does you know. That just doesn't feel like a thing that gets people's hearts beating faster, even though it seems like a manifest good for society. The other thing that's interesting to me and this sort of connects back to the protest thing is like I am, again, it's probably an unpopular opinion, but I feel like there's certainly an argument that the existence of the platform, even though it has these sort of objectionable views that I largely disagree with uh, or you know, completely disavow, uh, 
that it's that that community, which when they felt like they weren't hurt, hurt weren't being heard, they showed up to Parliament and set fire to things. Just having like an online radio station where they're like, at least we can chat with each other and get mad. Like, is the net impact on society of that group feeling like it has a voice better than there being no outlet for it, being suppressed and just spreading on social media completely unconstrained? Like, what is the... What is the best sort of societal outcome to the extent that that's even something that media should consider? Because it's almost like a public health type response to information. I don't know. I think that that logic, I have not considered that even as a thought. And I feel like if you extrapolated it out to its logical conclusion, you'd be like, well, you need the Holocaust denier radio station so that they feel heard or you need Yeah, that's the, a fair point. You know? That's a fair point. Let's get yeah, out of this yeah. terrible cult culture. Why start advocating for Nazi radio? Yeah, yeah exactly. So Don't that clip they... that out of context, please. Um, the next story I want to talk about probably more briefly and hopefully more safely is the the New Zealand Film Commission's CEO, David Strong, who, I mean, this was just like a fascinating little media parable that doesn't necessarily speak to big themes of society, but was certainly weird. So basically, David Strong was a re- very relatively recently appointed CEO of the Film Commission. That's always a contentious job, just given the amount of power that uh, they wield in terms of you know funding within the New Zealand film scene. And he was in his job for about nine months and then just sort of mysteriously vanished on, on special leave, as they euphemistically call it, uh, eventually to resign about four or five months later. And basically what happened was like he had this sort of script in development uh, called The Pilgrim, and it and there's a lot of different funds around this. And you can get kind of in the weeds of this, but, but he... But basically, he he sort of declared it as a conflict. Not only that, it was like literally part of his bio as his bona, bona fides or bona fides, as Toby Mannheim makes me pronounce it. Oh, well, wow. oh, I know it's Italian, um, and uh, you know, on on the Film Commission website, and basically, Sparta, which is the Screen Production and Development Association, were, were sort of told about this and absolutely popped off that the Film Commission CE could somehow remove himself from the room when his project is being discussed and then uh, and his presence not be felt in terms of funding decisions around it but it was a, it was a whole thing. Did you did you catch that? I story? did not follow your very popular. I saw it at the top <laughs> of the pop, pops and the spinoff for quite some time. But yeah, industry gossip. I guess conflicts of interest are pretty hard things to manage. You have this in the judiciary as well. Yeah, well, yeah, there's an interesting. I can't really. I don't know whether I can talk about it, but and there's a bunch of climate activists taking uh, climate activists. I hate that term. Actually, it's like it's like calling like a sick person like a staying alive radical or something. <laughs> it's like the climate uh, climate uh, campaigners that are taking AT to court over its um, transport plans. This is very peripheral, but anyway, they're going to the one of the courts, and actually, one of the judges is married to. AT's uh, former board chair. Yep. Uh, and so it's like uh, that person would just remove themselves from the room when the judges are deliberating or something. But then it's like, how, how do you stop that person's presence being felt in that environment or, the, the, or negate the influence they have over their colleagues? I imagine that the same would be true of the film commission. I, I, th- I think it's, it's absolutely true, especially because, the, you know, they... they if, if you're, you know, they're working with an independent production company, and that independent production company not only is working on the Pilgrim, they also have a suite of other things they'd very much like to be funded. And I don't, th- I genuinely don't think that they, you know, that the Film Commission CE is going to react one way or another if the project gets gets funded. It's just too small a country to kind of really uh, pull strings in any kind of overt way but I think it just does point to like I remember when when Dave Gibson the you know, founder of the Gibson group became film commission so he literally sold the company that was the general gold standard for uh, for conflict of interest management it was it was really don't don't have any and it's the same reason that you're supposed to put your assets into a blind trust uh, if you're president of the United States it's like you know the, these it's just the appearance of a conflict is is as bad as the conflict itself, but the whole screen industry is riddled with it to the point where it almost just needs someone who's got 
no background in it to yeah. come in and just sort of smash heads together, you know? Yeah, just get like one of those commissioners that they always get to do the independent reviews to come in. Like put, fix it. Because that's right, you're, so, you're in a small industry in a small country. <laughs> so like this is a wider media problem, right? Like just everyone knows everyone and it's almost impossible to not have a conflict of interest. I mean, how did AutoZam get all that money from NZ on Air all, oh, the, all those years back? I, I don't want to cast aspersions. No, it's really cool. <laughs> I'm just, I can't believe this is the first time that AutoZam's been mentioned on this podcast. How have you not mentioned AutoZam? I, I used to write about AutoZam all far the time. too much. They got like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Anyway, I'm just saying like maybe who you know in this country is actually a bit of a... It, it almost, up. Yeah, it makes the case for like a professional managerial class who have no real interest in the thing that they're managing, which is both dystopian and maybe necessary. So that, that was at the start of May. At the end of May, I caught COVID. And when I came out of my fugue state, uh, TVNZ's newsroom was on fire. Kamal Santamaria had sort of gone on compassionately, which very quickly became revealed to be something else. Can you sort of explain this quite extraordinary well, what, story? What did TVNZ say had happened? He was on air for about a week. He covered the budget. Then he disappeared. And I think TVNZ said it was a, a family emergency. Family emergency, that's right. So, which, so Camilla Santamaria, for anyone who wasn't aware, which is probably very few people listening to this podcast, he, was, he came over from Al Jazeera. He was this big statement hire to replace John Campbell on breakfast, breakfast, you know, like a real marquee show for TVNZ, uh, was hired by Paul Urisic, um, part of the a sort of a little trio of, of really senior um, Al Jazeera people, New Zealanders who were at Al Jazeera, who'd, who'd sort of come home to help really digitise TVNZ's offer. And uh, we were all really excited. Toby wrote a cool profile. I'd corresponded with this guy a bit over the years, and then suddenly it exploded. Yes, and I mean, as it emerged, there had been multiple allegations over the past 17 years at Al Jazeera that he had acted inappropriately. Same thing, and then almost immediately a similar allegation at at TVNZ. TVNZ. And I think the fact that he, in some ways, TVNZ didn't conduct itself well. They said it was a family emergency, which is kind of darkly comical in a way because, I mean, getting accused of inappropriate conduct in the workplace will cause a family emergency, just not of the type that probably they wanted people to interpret that as. Correct. Um, and, 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 but in other ways, it speaks well of TVNZ's culture. He went for 17 years at Al Jazeera and he lasted a month at TVNZ before being obviously stood down. It wasn't a real it's a great point. family emergency. So, I mean, there's that and, that, that. and we have maybe a cultural cringe in New Zealand where we say, oh, we're, we're not as good as Al Jazeera. We need to bring them over to help us get to the 21st century. Actually, maybe our culture in a lot of ways is better. Maybe we're... Um, you know, outperforming, uh, punching above our weight, uh, beating the world per capita, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, maybe we're not actually so bad. Um, uh, Having said that, I mean, yeah, it's obviously not exactly great that the process that happened to bring this guy on board seems to have been deeply inadequate and TVNZ has acknowledged that. They've said, look, they they basically just shoulder-tapped him, he came over, they've introduced now some actual you know, processes for um, new presenters, including on-screen tests with their co-presenters. I think as well, though, you had the settled newsroom uh, that really, like, got up in arms and was quite publicly outspoken about how upset it was about that poor process and the fact that this person that was obviously inappropriate for the role had been foisted on them. That's quite unusual for TVNZ, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the... There's sort of two threads to that. One is that, like, you know, talent recruitment, especially the sort of headline talent uh, where where it's news where they're hired at all, um, you know, that has to be on some level a bit, a bit secretive and you sort of understand why, you know, that there, it felt like there were two sets of rules. There was a, the way that TVNZ hired everybody else and then a tiny little sliver of, but you can basically do whatever you want when it comes to, like, your really senior on-air talent. And... Yeah, you know, they they have kind of acknowledged that 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 really wasn't appropriate. Um, but then the the thing that was really interesting, and I think you you just touched on them, was like the way that TVNZ's newsroom itself responded to this. Now, obviously, like it it led the news on uh, on the Sunday, which was which was quite full, and it was like a chunky three minute piece. It was 
very charged because they were covering a story that came from, you know, I think it's about 120-odd people work at, in TVNZ's newsroom. It was one person who worked in it and the, the sort of the victim you know, in this was, was also from that community too. But it also felt like the, the scale of it and the prominence of it. And 6, 6, 6 p.m. Sunday is the single most watched program anywhere on New Zealand television every week. So the fact of putting it there was a real like – it was saying to management, which was desperately, you know, family emergency, trying to make it go away, this thing ain't going away. Yeah, and that speaks well of TVNZ's editorial culture, doesn't it? Like, I mean, uh, I mean, the whole thing is really the reporters standing up to this and saying, look, we, we don't do this here. And they put Kim Baker Wilson doing his live cross on the 6pm news talking about his own organisation. They hired their own legal counsel uh, to, because they didn't want to use the in-house legal counsel for their story. Uh, I actually have a story about this. I don't know whether Tell it will me. be able to be broadcast <laughs> other than anonymise it. Uh, but apparently Paul Urisic would watch the news with the newsroom every night. Wow. And he'd just give pointers on the 6pm news, but he did that on that day as well. No. So it's just him and they're doing a live cross about his decisions and his actions and he's just standing there going, oh, yeah. And then Giving usually, sort of feedback. Oh. Usually, <laughs> wow. usually apparently he'd give feedback on that occasion. He just was like, oh, yep, see you guys, and kind of like just went home at the end. And uh, like maybe never came back? Oh, no, he did come. I think he came back and... Um, he he has been since um, he has since resigned. I think that resolved in in his departure, and ultimately, uh, and uh, recently, staff reported that Mediana Hond, who was the sort of head of digital news, has also resigned. So that whole kind of trio, who were really brought on to kind of shake and digitise that newsroom, have gone. And you know, it'll be interesting. At Zed, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at zed.co.nz. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Next story I want to talk about is uh, Sky and Media. This was like a real, I mean, this is really wonky and, and kind of business, uh, very much on the business side, but for like... Yeah, but, this is your territory. Like, we're a show that, like, you know, listens to Mike Hosking every week and then does a little show saying, get a load of that, you know, we talk <laughs> about, you know, we're more of a weekly media commentary show, you know, Duncan Grieve, what do they say? And now you're, you're more, let's take a bird's eye view of the media industry. So this is really your, your forte, but go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, I, like I do find this probably more fascinating than is healthy, that the whole um, sort of tectonic plates business side of it. I'm being so unfair to Colin as well. You know, he, he actually does do all that bird's eye view stuff. He does. He's he really, really does. And, you know, sometimes I even do it. I'm just, I'm just playing up to our reputation in the media <laughs> I'm playing the heel. <laughs> I mean, you do it well. You do it well. The um, So basically what happened was that – so Sky TV got a new CEO at the start of this year, Sophie Maloney, who yeah, the, the previous chief executive basically 
did a lot of stuff, probably too much stuff, very fast. And so, you know, she was an internal candidate and a bit of a sort of steady the ship type type candidate. And yet, you know, and Sky is this, you know, it's like this colossus of New Zealand media. By by turnover, it's still by far the biggest thing that we have. But it's also, you know, it's undergoing the same kind of uh, analog to to digital um transition that we all are and it's just really hard to see how you kind of carry on 800 odd million dollars a year in revenues out of a digital space that is a lot more hotly contested you know the likes from all, all the the netflixes and disney pluses of the world but so that she was looking for a new story to tell and a way of kind of transforming the company and media works which you know, has has been for sale for about ten years. It it, it broke away its TV arm, sold that to, to to Discovery. It found an outdoor advertising thing. So it's it's collection of radio stations and, and outdoor advertising, largely a little bit of digital, a little bit of online. But the idea was that by merging Sky and MediaWorks, you would just create a a significantly bigger operation that had a much more rounded out. Uh, and particularly the advertising side, like they're just Sky is, pr- I think, probably largely underperformed in advertising because it's had such a great direct-to-consumer subscription revenue base. And this thing was, you know, the reason why I was so excited was because nothing seems to happen in New Zealand. Like I read this book, Media Unmade, which is about the last decade in Australian media, and those things are being sold and unbundled and rebundled just constantly. And in New Zealand, nothing seems to change. I mean, we tried a couple of times. Sinead Boucher bought stuff. That was pretty intense. It, that, was only, it, was, it only cost $1, that's to true. be fair. Our biggest transaction of the last, like, 10 years was a dollar. But uh, but mainly the Commerce Commission got in the way of, you know, of Sky and Vodafone merging and, and uh, stuff and, and NZME merging. So... You know that that's been part of the issue, but this thing was like, oh, suddenly something real is real is going to happen. But basically, shareholders looked at it and said, absolutely not, thanks. They hated it. They and and I mean, what does guys shares go down seven percent on the news? Yeah, and, and then the, like within a week, they're announcing, whoops, not doing it. I was really surprised by by the reaction. I mean, it was. At, at a pretty like like I think my understanding is that discussions had been going on for quite a few months by then, and there was quite an advanced amount of due diligence had been done, and it was a similar thing to Twitter in a way, in that when they first started talking, markets were off their peak but still pretty high, and had they been able to push the thing through right away, then you then it would have you know, probably been better received. But by then the chill had come over the markets. There'd been those two big chunky kind of uh, drops in the, in the market and I think Adrian Orr was getting on stage with a grave expression <laughs> you, were, you were kind of getting into Cool Your Jets era yeah well, it, was, era. it was early Cool Your Jets yeah. <laughs> um, the Jets were starting to cool yeah. <laughs> they yeah. weren't quite as frigid as they are now but yeah that's true and so basically I think the shareholders were just like don't spend any money on anything else just give it back to us and you know I just find that so boring and I feel for for Sophie, in the sense that you know the the fundamental argument was right, it, that, but it was just that the time was wrong, as Mark Knopfler once saying. Yeah, that, it, I mean, I don't know whether it would have been good for New Zealand media sector. I don't see any um, as many potential downsides to it as there would be for something like Stuff and the Herald merging. That's for sure. You know, it's a pay TV business and a radio business, if anything, maybe it would shore up that free-to-air business. So maybe it is a bit of a lost opportunity. I mean, just having any kind of scale operation, because I think the big sh- I mean, there's been a lot of big shifts over the last decade, but that, that aren't particularly, I don't know, well understood necessarily by sort of regulators of the general public. But the big one is that, like, the competition used to be between Stuff and the Herald or Sky and TVNZ, or, you know, and now it's just... Anything that is plausibly made or sold locally and the amassed armies of the world that are coming here with near zero cost of production and just taking ad revenues and attention. Um, so that's the, the kind of modern set of affairs. I just want to swing back now. It's the uh, damn internet. It's the goddamn internet. Can this someone find Everything the that we're switch, saying, turn it turn off. Turn it off. That's what's lurking in the background of everything we're talking about today. The damn internet is going to be in the background of this next topic. I can feel it. Well, I don't know. I feel like this was the, the good old days. Was, uh, was before the internet, every day 
you got your newspaper off your doorstep and there was some heinous crime on it. Oh. And, uh, and that's what the news was, was when someone did something bad to someone else and, you know, that you know that, that it bled and it led. And uh, there's, there's been like a, I feel like over the past decade there has been a, a, a sort of a structural secular shift towards reporting more sort of thematic things about, you know, homelessness or, you know, like the, the whole position of, of the media, as we, as we touched on earlier, has changed. But this year, Ram Raids brought, brought sort of crime panic back. And this is something you've covered quite extensively on Media Watch. Yes. We had the return of crime panic. Even as we're recording this morning on, on the AM show, you had Ryan Bridge uh, you know, he had been furnished with the stats from the Justice Minister, Kitty Allen, you know, and she furnished them in Parliament. She showed that crime has been going down for some years. It's had a recent spike, but in general, the trend is downward. And he just literally said, you know, don't show me your graph. Uh, you ask anyone on the street right now, and they'll be saying that they're more scared than they've been in years. And you can't tell me, you know, that, that, that the graph disproves that. And I think there really is now... Um, probably a perception out there that the crime is rampant and that we should be scared, but the question is whether that is actually something that's real or is the return of this blanket media coverage of crime. And I suspect that the latter uh, is part of that. It's it's really like that's why having data sort of un- underpinning and associated with these stories is is so crucial because it is very you know, like ram raids have spiked. That that is undeniably a trend that um, has you know, like it's a very specific, viscerally kind of uh, impactful type of crime. It has gone up. It has been highly covered on the news. That absolutely adds to perceptions of it. It's also like I don't know what your for you page on TikTok is like, but I get a lot of like someone grabbing stuff from a jewelry store and running past yelling things. It's pretty. Full on, but undeniably adds to that sense that society is falling apart just because yeah. there's this new vertical video format that's just distributing a lot of these videos in a way that they didn't used to be quite so kind of kinetic and consumed as they were before. The ram raids thing is is real. There's a huge spike in ram raids, and so that's really the underpinning of this. That there's something real underpinning this. If you all the headlines said ram raid spike, they'd all be completely accurate. The the issue is that you're getting a sort of general theme of lawlessness. You're getting uh, headlines like youth crime spike, which isn't actually being borne out so far in the data. Maybe it will be. Uh, you're sort of having uh, lawlessness pinned on all youths as a result of this. And it just really shows, as you say, how the media we consume can uh, shape our perceptions of reality. And this is a long-running, uh, well-studied trend, right, where people always think that crime is going up even when it's going down and it's not because of anything to do with the crime statistics but to do with media coverage of crime. Well, that's what I think is really interesting though because like that, that has been historically the case that uh, people's perceptions of crime are completely de- decoupled from what is actually happening in crime statistics. But the, the, the new factor that 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 is that exists now that hasn't existed historically is that it's not about the news media now the news media is part of the picture mm. still probably the dominant part but this new the the sort of direct from a specific individual smartphone to an enormous national audience that uh that social video user generated content and then particularly TikTok has uh allowed for means that the ability to kind of test and get your arms around the thing and really go, well, is this as bad as it looks? Well, it, you, you're, you're not getting any context. You're just, you're just seeing the crime. And I feel like that, that's a new wrinkle. I don't know how you resolve that because that isn't a kind of a core news media issue. That is just a things that people are seeing, attention issue. Uh, I think that that's just a cognitive bias, right? We extrapolate what we see and, and what we're fed in our media consumption out to the entire world. And so that's just hard to get around. And that does that's agnostic of the platform that we're consuming that media on. TikTok is just a new one. Uh, uh, I think that probably you're right, though. For a long time there was 
that sort of more nuanced uh, understanding of crime that it is the result of multiple societal factors that sort of harsher punishments don't necessarily work. I mean, the data would say that actually they don't. Uh, that uh, Maybe there's a societal function, maybe the punishment is the point rather than their, its effectiveness in some ways, but that if you want you know, to reduce crime, they don't work. That, that, that was really catching on in the media, and I think it was generally quite broadly accepted Agreed. as just data. And because of the ram raids and because of the visceral nature of them, it's really under threat. And this tough on crime rhetoric or rhetoric, sorry, is um, making a huge comeback and it's becoming mainstream again. I kind of think that's a shame. And I do see, you know, people like John Campbell, people in the Open Justice Project, you know, uh, there are others out there. Oh, it was Wilhelmina Shrimpton in Today FM, you know, uh, that have really tried to launch a regard action and try and look at these sort of factors that are going into crime, poverty, um, the, the the tough situations that some of these people, uh, these people, <laughs> you know, ram raiders are coming out of. Um, they've really done a good job of that. But I think that they are sort of on the losing end of the debate at the moment, which I, I don't know, I think is a shame. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely... Yeah, something that that feels like it has evolved quite radically over the course of the year and heading into an election year, which does feel like it's going to be in part a law and order election. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's going away. The the next thing I want to talk about is, uh, you know, is and there was actually a criminal element to to this, or at least a, a trial. Um, is is the sort of the this idea that reality TV, as we know it, this particular era that we've gone through in in Aotearoa, might be coming to an end, which which kind of I, I write about this. And I do uh, a a podcast about reality TV every week uh, called called the Real Pod. So you know, it's I'm I'm very across this, but the reason that it really kind of leapt out was was F Boy Island and the the fact that one of the contestants who was you know, ended up being cut out of the show before broadcast, had been charged with some pretty gnarly stuff in a date situation and um, and that just hadn't been picked up. And this this has happened a number of times over over the years, but there was something about the scale of the response that this, the fact that it was on TVNZ, the fact that it was happening uh, in the, you know, when, you know, in the, with the backdrop of the merger... That it wasn't the first time. That it wasn't the first time. And, and this is Warner Brothers, which is you know, a production company that had made some of the other shows. You know, Married at First Sight famously had a very similar uh, situation. So, you know, between that and just beforehand, you'd had the block um, auctions, which, you know, it feels like tawdry to even draw a line here. But this is the same genre of, of programming that it, you know, the, the auctions basically – Completely caved in on themselves, and there was this sense that, you know, between for for a variety of reasons, that this might this might be completely falling over. But it's uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to make the case for exactly why it might be falling over. In some ways, it might be just the end of the good concepts. You've got F Boy Island, which feels like the, the sort of seventh generation iteration of you know a dating show uh, that have just become more extreme and more weird every time. And so now you're getting this situation because you've got like the producers of that show having to find guys that are really bad, but not bad enough to be criminal, which is quite <laughs> a lot, and want to be on TV, which is quite a small pool of people. And obviously they they screwed up. Um, it's not just that, though, right? It's the internet. This is what I thought we were going to, you know, I thought this would be an internet one because people get their reality, sort of the same buzz that they get from reality TV from following celebrities on Instagram or TikTok or whatever. This feels like a similar thing. And part of the power of reality TV was that it was for a mass audience and we were all watching it at once and experiencing it at once and, and talking about it at once. Whereas now, as we've said, the audiences are so fragmented. They're on a lot of social media sites. So maybe that is another factor behind some of this stuff. Also, the block, just the housing market's going down. Yeah. The, Sorry, guys. Yeah, to totally. I mean, I'm, I'm happy about it. See you later. <laughs> See you later, housing crisis porn. But not see you later, housing crisis. Oh no, that's still there, just slightly not as bad as it was. Yeah, I mean, like, 
I, it does just just feel to me like the that that era of reality TV did rely on you know the the whole function of it was almost sports like that it was a thing that you watched live or close to live and then you could talk about the the next day around the mythical water cooler at work. Willie Moon and Natalia Kills. I mean the greatest thing that ever happened to the spin-off. Great night on Twitter. Hell of a night on Twitter, you know. <laughs> As you said, reality TV has the some of the same forces acting on it that, that exist on social media and that, you know, there isn't a pivot to enormous centrism, you know, like it's 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 make what's the next most extreme thing? And and F Boy Island, you know, with the conceit being that, you know, some of these guys are assholes, like it's it's not to everyone's taste. And it's certainly in an era or at a moment, sorry, when the government is trying to get TVNZ in particular to kind of think of itself in this, you know, potentially slightly worthy way as a, as a public media organisation. The fact that it was launching F-Boy Island with a, you know, someone charged with a really gnarly offence as, as one of the stars of it was just... It was a little incongruous yeah, with, with the brand pitch. It, it was somewhat, and it just does make it very hard to imagine anything in that realm for like at least you're on six months before you know you what the other problem terrible. is Duncan and I'm sorry this might be offensive to you but Probably. but but reality TV feels like a genre that's kind of pitched at or is best when it's sort of consumed mainly by young people and it's uh, increasingly especially when it comes to TVNZ on a medium that is consumed by old people like you yeah, so that's a problem. It's a real problem, and uh, you know, you give me lots to think about, Hayden. Uh, let's go from there to something that was like unambiguously, amazingly cool, which was the Black Ferns victory in the World Cup, which is a media story, I swear, because for all the the kind of the things we've been talking about today, which are you know are these kind of broad based declines in audience and fragmenting of audiences. Just shy of a million people watch that thing live on on linear on on three. Now three, normally its highest rating show is the news, and it's about two hundred thousand five plus. This was five times that audience, nearly twice as many as watched the six pm news on TVNZ, which is normally the highest rating show. This thing was just a massive, massive event. And for years, uh, we've been having this debate about women's sport. Uh, uh, whereas people say, oh... Can uh, you just be like a, a women's sport doubter, just, just yeah, embody yeah. one for uh, a moment? Well, who am I right now? I don't know. Who, who's a, who's a, I don't who's think a name anyone, yeah. but <laughs> just let's invent, like, like, invent a personality. People just don't want to watch it. You know, they're just not as good as the men, and they don't want to watch it. Something and, about and investment? you can do all the media coverage you want, but they don't want to watch it. And then on the other side, you'd have other people, you know, Alice Sopers of the world, that's saying, look, it's just not funded, and it's not covered, and it doesn't get anything like the resourcing of men's sport. And so I feel like someone like that's probably, you know, dashboard confessional singing Vindicated right now. Like, <laughs> vindicated. Dashboard confessional and autosave. No, no, that's wrong, no. But anyway, they are vindicated. <laughs> that was amazing. Um, but it's vindication, right? Because because it shows that if you do cover these these teams and you get the personalities on screen and you get people to know them, um, then people pay attention. People pay attention, and and you know they're because the thing that always annoyed me about the like patronising, there's no business case for it uh, approach, which has you know has been a you know the other side of that. Um, that annoying kind of archetypal character that you were just uh, very convincingly being, you know, is that they were like, well, you know, you you, you can't, there, there's no money in it, therefore you can't invest. And it's like, no, you invest in something to make money. Like, this is how investments work. This is how, this is the same thing with cycleways. Uh, yeah. I knew we'd get cycleways into this. <laughs> but it's, the if, Hayden look, Danelle bingo women's player sports in home. New Zealand are the cycleways of the, you know, <laughs> of the sports uh, whereas in the All Blacks of the roads, you know, there's 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 so many resources and all of our infrastructure has gone into supporting them. And you go, oh, why are people watching that? Well, because, you know, why are people driving? Because, you know, the cycleways yeah. turn into a gravel path at the end of 100 metres. You know, why are people into the All Blacks almost exclusively? Because they're promoted almost exclusively. Yeah, yeah. So so it's a, it's a, it's a great analogy. And, you know, I, I think what, we will. It will be really interesting to see because it, 
It, it felt like for that minute, and honestly, like the fever of these moments can, it, you know, is hard to sustain. But because of the the charisma, because the style of play was so attractive, and because every one of these games was an absolute like vomit-inducing nail-biter stress fest that happened to break the right way. I wasn't part of the ratings because I just literally couldn't watch. (laughs) Like, I was just like, I watched the first 10 minutes of the final and saw England score twice and then, like, we scored once and then I was just like, I need to go and vomit and lie down until... Same as Grant Elliott hitting that six in the semi-final of the Cricket World Cup. I was at both those games. I was getting Rachel to read out Crick info to me while I, like, (laughs) had my hands over my eyes on the couch. I just can't do it. But, I mean, I'm glad that other people had the experience and I, I think that you're right to point out the joy right because that that's really the I mean I think this product like it was a good product no matter what but I think the fact that the team is so joyful and in such contrast the All Blacks like played with joy mm. uh, that was the style of play that was instilled for that team and actually got them to where they got in the end and I mean that really helped so it was all of it was a confluence of factors yeah yeah and, and, I, and I think it, it will be you know, I, I wrote about this at the time, but New Zealand rugby, who you know many have criticised as being part of the kind of going too slowly with, um, with with the Blackferns, and now the beneficiaries of this, and it becomes even more incumbent on them. Now they've got these two smash hit teams to really. If they you know, screw this the up, and it. they could definitely screw it up, I did see that they have. Was it was it Dame Patsy Reddy was installed as a board chair? Yeah, she's good. This lady. week, so that's. I mean, that's, you know, addressing the gender balance, which only board, what is it? Only board in New Zealand sport that failed to meet their gender balance requirements. So, yes. I mean, they're coming from a low base here. It is. It is. Uh, it and is. they got to turn things around pretty quick to take advantage of this. So, the last two stories we've got are, uh, are inherently linked, but I'll, we'll treat them sort of separately um, or as separate as we can. So the first is the the shrinking of the New Zealand on-air model. I mean, basically, the, the two-parter of this is that the government earlier this year, and this has been a long, slow-moving story, you could have done the story every year for, for three years, is, is the government finally this year decided that it would merge TVNZ and RNZ, your erstwhile employer, uh, and into a new organisation called ANZPM. They would both survive as brands. Nothing would change. It's very important to say, though, on some level you definitely want something to change. That's the whole no, point. Nothing, nothing would change, but that's something def- desperately needs to change, but nothing will change. Yeah. yeah that, that, a that's weird, a, weird it's a weird pitch. PR pitch, yeah. So, um, and they would receive a, you know, a significant increase in funding. But the big thing that, you know, from... Yeah, that it, that is a a change to a thirty year established system is that New Zealand on air, which has been this kind of decentralised public broadcaster that almost anyone can apply to for funding. Anyone who operates a media platform with a scale audience, uh, it would have the funding which used to it used to you know fund RNZ with that would go go direct to ANZPM, but also the money that it used to fund shows for TVNZ with would go straight to ANZPM. So basically New Zealand On Air would go from having like a sort of $150 million or so budget to about 60-something million. And as a result, it had to completely rethink uh, what what it was, what its function was. I don't know enough to make a, have a definitive opinion on everything here. The few things that I would note is that a lot of the justification for the RNZ-TVNZ merger is that uh, RNZ and TVNZ, uh, honestly, it's a true problem. They're not catering to younger audiences and they're not catering to Māori and Pacifica audiences. And so the, a lot of the justification for merging them is that maybe this new entity will be able to develop digital products and all this sort of stuff that will actually reach some of those audiences. They have the scale and resources to do so. But if you look at the organisation that is actually reaching those audiences right now in the public sector, it's New Zealand On Air. And uh, the funding <laughs> actually... A lot of people hate it, but I think the Public Interest Journalism Fund is in a lot of ways quite a successful program because it's funded open justice and uh, democracy reporters around New Zealand and and, uh, projects that are focused on Māori and Pacifica audiences. And uh, they're doing that and they're doing other stuff that like uh, 
Citizen's Handbook or CIS or something like that. Uh, I know you had a story today about that. Uh, you know, they're, they're funding different shows to what might just come out of a public broadcasting entity. And so that seems like a risk to cut that budget in half when they have those connections and they have that experience of doing that. Yeah, I mean, like the, this is the, the counter-argument, and I think it's one that National will increasingly make as they sort of try, because they have decided to campaign against the merger and the inverse of, or the flip side of campaigning against the merger is, well, what would you do differently? And unlike with Three Waters, they they do have an answer for that um, philosophically, which is, we think the New Zealand on-air system is good. That's basically National's mm-hmm. position is, is don't change it, continue to resource New Zealand on-air and allow them to to not, you know, the the, the merger is effectively saying that the state, di- di- I mean, because this is the other side of it, this is the state directly commissioning um, the largest part of its programming for the first time in, in decades, which, you know, is a really big, big change. You know, that's, that's them deciding what, what, the, what the shows should be and how to kind of go and serve those audiences. There's, there's, there's also an argument that TVNZ and RNZ have a proven track record of not being able to serve those missing audiences particularly well. So why would you pick those two institutions, which have, I think, broadly speaking, some of the oldest audiences on, on average, uh, not, not in total, but on average of, of any in the New Zealand media, to go and find that? If you were sort of rationally just procuring that, you know, ownership agnostic, you might not do it. So... It's it's a it's a kind of pump all the money into Vice NZ. <laughs> you know that's that sort that's of a proven model, isn't it? That's MSD's revive, job. Revive Vice NZ again to to provide it all. Sorry, go on. No, no, it's it's all right. I mean, so let's actually just. I mean, like that that is almost for the average punter. That is of rel- relatively esoteric interest. I think that they are less aware of New Zealand on air's function than perhaps they might otherwise be. But the thing that has, as of right now. ANZPM, ANZPAM as it's known colloquially, is still on. But based on an interview that happened this past Sunday on Q&A, it went from being this thing that was obviously going to happen to suddenly it started feeling quite shaky. Did you watch Willie Jackson's appearance yeah, on the final well, of Q&A? Yeah, well, he was a bit shaky on the timeline, right? He's like, oh, yeah, it'll definitely be in place by July next year. But then I see Toby Manhire in the spinoff today saying, Jacinda Ardern is saying that she's going to focus on the stuff that really matters next year and maybe this isn't something that she thinks really. So maybe... Oh, who knows? Who well, knows? It's looking a little bit shaky, as you say. And there is this worry with NZ on air that, you know, there are things that are actually kind of working. And do you want to mess with that too much? I think there is a case for change, though. There are underserved audiences and there is benefits in scale. There, are, there is absolutely a case for change. It's unfortunate that I think the minister hasn't necessarily always been you know, done a, the greatest job of articulating that. and It's kind of uh, similar to Three Waters where the government hasn't articulated its case very well. You know, there's poo bubbling up in the streets of Wellington and somehow we still are having a massive debate over the na- need to change the structure governing our pipes. But I guess it's sort of a similar uh, It's decaying situation. infrastructure, yeah, right? decaying and, infrastructure. You Sorry. Know, <laughs> and that's basically what, what sort of happened here. And much as... You know, like I, I made a submission on behalf of the spin-off to you know to the the ANZPM bill, uh, the first draft of it in September. I do think that there were parts of it that needed sort of adjustment. That's the whole point of having the select committee process. But that you know that the, the way that it was drafted, it wasn't clear that it wouldn't just be like an enormous, <laughs> very commercial behemoth that could kind of crunch. Uh, basically everyone else and and the media underneath its feet, even without necessarily meeting to. But, you know, Minister Jackson and and Tracy Martin, who's chaired the establishment board, have both been at pains to say that is not what we're trying to do and we will try and address that. It's just that because of that interview on Sunday, you know, it's been rolling all week. This And National have really enjoyed this is their kind of um, prototypical example of government largesse with unpopular policy that they're putting you know, heaps of money into. And, you know, Chris and Lux- not making the case for it very well and it's quite complex and not really understood by the people and particularly the audiences that are currently quite enjoying TVNZ and RNZ. So, yeah, it's one of those. 
Yeah, so it's entirely possible but, but that by the time we air this that the, that ANZ PM has vanished and, you know, there, that the air cover that is national saying we would demerge it is something that they can use to, to say uh, we're, we're not going we're not going, we're not going to go ahead with it. And I honestly think that would be a shame because much as you can debate and honestly you could debate spend the whole decade debating what the best form of a future proofed uh, organization that guaranteed better public media outcomes for underserved or for, for all New Zealanders was that would be a real waste of a decade. Like someone just needs to make a call and run ahead with it. And if they do it well, you know, it should, it should be functional, popular, and it doesn't have to necessarily destroy the private sector. There's absolutely a world where this was the right thing to do. Uh, and even that national, while it might say when in opposition that we demerge it, they get in there, they go and have a chat with some people and go, actually, you know, let's just try and make something rather than unmake something as, as among our first acts in power. Well, Luke Malpass was in stuff on the weekend, I think, saying, look, it's sort of neither here nor there. Why don't they just go with the 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 full why don't they just go 100% hundies and actually form a fully non-commercial public media entity in a similar style to the BBC or the ABC in Australia and that would be the easy and elegant solution really it would instantly um improve the fortunes of every commercial media company in New Zealand and it would uh mean that we have a real uh, public interest focused telling our stories type organization that's very popular model overseas uh, and beloved by Australian and uh, British audiences for all the occasional haters but uh, yeah maybe I, I think it's just a lot of money a lot of money for the government to give up TVNZ is so successful and it's so dominant in its market so they probably don't want to do it but I mean if we're talking about the future that would probably be the easiest and most popular and most feasible for them. I think that the the problem is that, you know, and that's, that ironically is something that Labour has long wanted and, and people who are kind of naturally Labour-aligned people have often had a fondness for that, that type of organisation. It also, because we're now on our third broadcasting and media minister since um, 2017, I don't think anyone can really remember whose idea it was and who's passionate about it. It doesn't seem to be Willie's passionate in the about it in the sense that he wants to like win and he likes to, he he's he's a scrapper, he's a union guy and fair play, but I, it doesn't feel like if he was had a blank sheet of paper and all the time in the world that this is the thing that he would draw up. So like I say this might all be immaterial by the time this is, but it's been the big rolling storyline of the year. It impacts your job, it impacts mine, uh, and yeah, we'll see how it plays up. Oh, does uh, it? It might not. I don't know. Well, we don't know. We don't know anything. But uh, I think you know. I'll just be staying in the building. But there'll be a new, uh, you know, acronym. That's true. There, there's. There has been a great year for acronyms. Um, Hayden, thanks so much for coming up and uh, you know fold watching. Oh, it's uh, been a me. pleasure. I, I mean, I hope that I haven't said anything horrifically defamatory, but I probably have. Uh, great, great to be be here for what amounts to essentially a megapod, and I'm just happy to be adding time to it right now <laughs> with this meandering exit. It's like a Peter Jackson film. I'm doing Return of the King here. How long can I vamp? <laughs> I'm done. You're done. Done. It's been great. Um, I reckon. Yeah, we, we should we should do it again. Uh, thank you so much, Hayden Danell, for coming up on the fold. Thank you for having me. The fold is brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network. It's hosted by Duncan Grieve, with production by Tiahe Butler and Samuel Robinson. Series production is by Jane Yee. Kia ora e te iwi, Tiahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.